better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Knowledge ideas, perspectives, and research insights on topics that matter. Business advice for better decisions and growth. Latest on the world of innovation and ideas. A look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.esade.edu. Welcome to the Esade podcast. Uh, and this is an, a podcast of the Esade Center for Innovation in Cities that aims to spur a dialogue around the future in cities. The following is a conversation with Jeff Merritt. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Jeff is here. Uh, Jeff Merritt is the head of Urban Transformation and a member of the Executive Committee at the World Economic Forum. And uh, previously, Jeff uh, was the head of uh, Major Blasio Office of Technology and Innovation and is also a keynote speaker in Smart City Expo that we're going to have in a few days. So welcome, Jeff. Happy to Thank have you here. Great to join you. <laughs> Thank you so much. My first question for you. Smart Cities mean different things to different people. Uh, just being responsible for initiatives as diverse as a link New York City or the worst landlord watch list that was one of your initiatives and so on. What should be the, the priorities for smart cities today? Well, I, you know, I think one of the things that we just did wrong, if you will, over the last uh, 15 years is that we got so excited about the potential of all of these new technologies that we just went, we became too tech centric, right? And what I mean by that is that we, we put the emphasis so much on the technology that we oftentimes would lose track of the, the end goal, right? And that I think in many ways that COVID in the last couple of years has been really good for the smart city movement because in some ways, because there's been so much tech adoption over the last couple of years spurred by, you know, remote working and the need, you know, all these things that we talked about for years in terms of, you know, e-learning and remote education and all that. We had no choice but to really quickly during the COVID pandemic to move in that direction. And so as a result now, Tech is not, it's become just embedded in everything. And so I think it enables us to to kind of recalibrate the smart city movement and go back to the basics and say, okay, you know, our cities are facing enormous, enormous challenges today, whether it be related to income inequality and affordability, whether it be related to the climate crisis and extreme weather. And the question is, how do we make our cities you know, more efficient, more resilient, more sustainable? And the good news is we've got a lot of technology tools to help us there. Uh, but I, I do think that now we thankfully have our priorities right where we realize that smart cities is just about how do we make our cities better? And tech has a role to play in there, but it's just one piece of a bigger strategy. Oh, fantastic. Going about all these uh, that you mentioned about technology, years ago, we were thinking of that censoring the whole city, putting censors everywhere was the solution, was what we needed. Uh, today, this view has changed a lot. 
uh, changed because of the technology itself, because imaging, digital twins, and so on, probably replace many of this view of putting a sensor every meter of the city, but also uh, about the use of technology, as you mentioned before, and so on. What is your view of this censoring the whole city, the camera, uh, this technological solution today in smart cities? You know, as I think, as we we're saying that we, the technology was very front and center before because we got excited about the fact that, you know, we saw increase in connectivity, we saw uh, increase in processing speed of devices, the, the devices just kept getting sm smaller and more powerful and more affordable. And that was sort of exciting. And I think fueled this talk about instrumenting every space of our cities. But what perhaps we didn't realize is that, you know, as the technology advanced uh, and became more ubiquitous, we didn't actually need all of these sensors that we have such a massive amount of data that we're constantly collecting that that we already are sensing our cities right that that these devices here are capturing such a massive amount of data the question is you know how do we harness the data that we need um you just look at take something like satellite data and how that's evolved over the last decade right we don't we oftentimes we were never, no one was ever talking about satellites in smart cities, right? But that's a really important data source that we have now that is sensing the city. So I, I think that it is appropriate that we're not talking as much about the instrumentation of our cities with sensors, but the reality is there are sensors everywhere in cities most of them you're just not aware of because they're not they don't look the same way they used to right everybody used to think about uh censoring and, and around sort of a camera right the idea of like understanding what was happening in a city was tied to the idea of like a surveillance camera um again now these these sensors are just embedded into our day-to-day -day lives they're in satellites etc um, and the question then becomes do we have access to the data that we need uh you know are we using that in an efficient way are we capturing data and sharing information in a sort of ethical responsible way Going into this direction that you mentioned about using software to capture the data for sensors, analytics was a big thing before. Yeah. Analytics was the promise of this data-driven city that was the solution yeah. for many things. Uh, where are we now, today, in analytics? Is still this promise? Did we learn things? Well... Let me so let me maybe a little bit of history here. So the the first real analytics team um, was started in New York City. This was under the Bloomberg administration, and uh, it was a guy named Mike Flowers that sort of led up this team initially, and he created a sort of small center of excellence where he hired in a lot of really really smart data analytics folks and they were in city hall and they started to work with agencies and what they learned really quickly was that 
you needed to prove the value of data. You couldn't just talk about the need for analytics. You had to win people over. And the the breakthrough or sort of turning point in New York was an effort where they worked with the fire department and they ultimately were able to prove to firefighters, who firefighters in many ways represent that traditional public servant, right? They're not someone that you think of as a technologist. They're doing a very specific job, trying to prevent, you know, fires. And that the analytics team was able to prove to them that they could predict uh, pretty at a, at a much higher rate than that the fire, the, what the department was doing previously, they could predict the areas that were more, most likely to have fires and that they could reorganize the inspection process so they could have the inspectors going out to buildings that were at highest risk and they could decrease the number of fires. And once they demonstrated that clear sort of return on investment, they showed that this new approach was more efficient and would ultimately save people's lives. Then what happened is the fire department hired a data analytics person and it was it no longer needed to be a centralized team. Slowly, they began to win over the workforce, right? And again, I do think that we made a lot of progress here during COVID because in an environment where cities oftentimes had to, move, they moved their workforce remote, they had to rely more on those digital tools. Just take, you know, they take somebody like an inspector, like it was a lot harder to go out and inspect people's homes when people were in lockdown and had these conditions. And so I do believe that the the COVID pandemic, in when we look back at this, we'll see it was a, a key turning point because for a lot of different application areas, it showed the critical role of data. In particular, simply tracking the the number of hospital beds that were available, tracking the access to vaccines, and you know, moving into that type of mentality where you didn't just go and distribute resources equally, you distributed resources based on expected need, right? You didn't just sort of say, um, you know, how many, uh, you know, how many uh, COVID tests do we need across the city? You said, where is it that we their highest demand is? And so that move towards sort of data-driven thinking, I think has progressed dramatically. And what I expect is in the next coming years, you're going to see more and more job openings for data analytics individuals within those individual departments at cities, because again, they they had that sort of aha moment that they saw that value, the value of data and that can ultimately make their business operations better. So I think we made some progress and we moved around that from this idea of data analytics is important to actually this realization that there are specific areas that data can help improve our work, save money, et cetera. Hmm. That's wonderful. This movement from data analytics in a centralized position to data analytics in the different departments and as an augmenting the capacity of these departments to act and to provide services. That's a Great insight. Probably uh, many cities will, will do this, this work, no? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just think that too often we talk about technology in an abstract sense, and it's only when it's in an applied setting does it really take off. And and that now we're you have less sort of panels and discussions about data analytics, and more you have discussions about you know how do we improve our education system? How do we improve mm-hmm. public safety? And in those conversations, we're ultimately talking about data analytics. It's just not the the subject itself. And I think that transition is important. Oh, that's wonderful. Another transition that is very important in cities is the need to innovate. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Societies, organizations, countries compete more and more on innovation, more than yes. on productivity and efficiency and so on. And then cities try to be, again, the bad box of innovation. Cities trying to be the... The, the place where innovation happens. But by doing that, you try to attract talent, you try to attract newcomers and so on to produce this innovation. And this produces also big divides between the city because this uh, attraction expels uh, uh, citizens that are probably not uh, so much into this capacity of innovate that so is there any solution to avoid this divide in cities or, or we have to live with that? I think it's completely false, a completely false narrative that uh, I really believe that Silicon Valley and the and the sort of venture capitalists of the, the world have got us thinking that innovation equals technology and that is completely completely uh, not true. You know, innovation at the core is is doing things better. And there are, a way, there are a variety of ways in which technology can do things better. But I think when we look to technology as the answer to everything, we actually limit our own innovation. And that uh, what, what really drives innovation is scarcity of resources and problems. And we have more problems in the world today than in any time in recent history. And I'm not, and we have resources available, but they're not necessarily um, allocated where they're needed most. And and in particular, if we look at the developing world, I really believe that, and I hope, I really hope that the, the greatest innovations of the coming decades are not going to come out of Silicon Valley. They're not going to necessarily come out of the New York and London's and even Barcelona's of the world. They're going to come out of these fast growing cities like Lagos and Dhaka and Kampala, right? Areas where the challenges are really intense and resources are scarce and therefore Individuals have to think outside the box. We just did a challenge last year. Um, we're announced the winners in a couple weeks called the the Urban uh, Innovation Challenge, and we focused on these fast-growing cities of the world, all in in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And I'll tell you, I don't, we haven't released the results yet, but I'm actually I'm a little disappointed in the winners here and the applicants. And the reason that I'm disappointed is that what we saw was a lot of what I'll call sort of Silicon Valley approaches, a lot of sort of application-based approaches, which were applied to, you know, developing uh, economies and fast-growing cities. So they took something that, you know, was working in another area and they 
have adapted it to unique needs of those markets. And that's an innovation, but that's not groundbreaking. What's groundbreaking is when you have a completely different way of solving a problem. And when we can sort of unleash that part of human potential, when we're not only thinking about solutions that require large amounts of capital, that's when we begin to address this equity issue. That's when we begin to, you know, really unleash the real potential of, of humans and their creativity because we we realize that there are lots of ways that you can innovate there's new business model approaches there it doesn't have to be tech centric um and that to me is ultimately the the solution to avoiding this kind of divide here where you have the technologists who are making lots of money and they're defining talent in a very specific way where talent is equal to your knowledge of coding and engineering. Um, there's a whole lot of other innovation that can emerge out of other parts of our brain and other skill sets. So um, we'll see what we'll see what comes ahead, but I'm optimistic. That's wonderful. Talking about problems, I mean, uh, a big problem was COVID. COVID-19 was one of these big challenges that we had. Yeah. And, did, and COVID redefined many aspects on, of the city. One of the aspects is the, the is, uh, remote working. In New York City now, we still have 50% of the office space still free, still not use it. This is uh, these are redefining the cities. Nobody was expecting that. Uh, nobody was expecting this, this change. What type of cities do you think that we will see in the future? We will see cities more teleworking, more homeworking. What is? I mean, at the end of the day, this is a good movement because what we've seen, you know, we've heard again and again over the last couple of decades is that people don't want this sort of big, they don't want to think about, let's just say the, the experiment around the suburbs um, and the idea that you live one place and you work in another area, it, I, I, I hate to say it was a failed experiment, but I don't think it's worked out that well for us. Um, and what I mean by that is it led to you know a whole lot of people commuting. It led to uh, a lot of it segmented our communities where we said, okay, you know that there's there's parts of communities that are commercial, parts of communities that are industrial, part of commercials that are residential. And what people want at the end of the day is vibrant mixed use communities, right? People want to be able to, uh, you know, on one hand, hang out, you know, do things with their family. They want to be able to walk their kids to school, but they also want to walk to the coffee shop, right? And they want to be able to live in an area with vibrant activities. And that requires a certain amount of density, if you will. And that, you know, people also want to live in an efficient, sustainable place. And that also requires density. And so, we're, we're seeing, I think, that the pendulum is swinging back in the direction it should be, which is that those vacant office spaces, you know, can be they can be transformed into vibrant mixed use areas that you should not have segmented. We should not have segmented our cities in the first place, that we should have neighborhoods where you have commercial office places, spaces for people who need to go into the office and want to go into the office. You need to have 
retail. You need to have the arts. You want to have all of this together in one place. Those are the communities we want to live in. That's where you're going to attract talent. That's where you want to raise your kids. Uh, and that's going to make our cities and our planet better in the long run. So I think we're at a, we're calibrating here and we're moving back where we should, but it's going to take some adaptive reuse, <laughs> meaning that, you know, we have to in the same way in COVID that we had to take our homes and figure out how to make them work as offices as well. Now it's the same thing. You're taking spaces in cities that were defined to be offices and you're saying, how can those have, you know, other uses for them? How can we turn those into spaces that can be used for things other than just commercial office? Mm-hmm. But very related to this thing, we have kind of three visions of smart cities. Uh, one vision comes from the East, and this is this Alibaba city brain approach where you have a big central control of everything and everything is super efficient in terms of the speed of the traffic speed and so on. Another thing, another vision of smart cities is market-based, but you have the BIMOS, the queues, all these uh, 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 private companies that bring solutions to the city and then you are using all these solutions to the city that bring these private companies for transportation and they take care of mm-hmm. many of the things that were taken care by the uh, uh, public sector. And then another vision of the, of the cities that you mentioned before is this 50-minute city that, that yeah. Paris and other cities, yeah. in certain way New York proposes, these cities that are more integrated and so on, what kind of mix of who is going to be the winner or they all are going to be the winner? What is your, your prediction about this? Who yeah, is- I, I don't think that they are competing with each other at all. Uh, and, you know, on one hand, you can say, okay, there's this model of, there's a Chinese model here that is very much anchored in very, very close collaboration, you know, between uh, a small set of companies and in the government. And it's sort of, you know, in some ways, a, from a central government standpoint, you know, Alibaba was sort of selected, if you will, to work with Hangzhou and Shanghai. And, you know, you have other companies selected to work with other cities in a real partnership to advance the technology along with the the sort of city's needs. Um, we also in China have seen a rise in at the exact in the same cities. We've seen the rise of you know Didi and other companies that are using what you call that second model, right? So just because China was taking that sort of centralized approach um, and doing those tight collaborations with a couple companies and giving really full access, that didn't mean that they were closing off opportunities for new startups and other companies, right? And that doesn't mean that they weren't also advancing, you know, a a 15-minute city type of concept. So I actually think in China, you see all three of those operating together. It's just that we focus oftentimes on the city brain type of collaboration because it is in very much in contrast to a European or American, you know, approach where there is a 
a big concern here about giving too much access to the private sector. And at the end of the day, the, you know, the answer here is that we need good technology governance. Um, this is the reason that, you know, one of the big priorities I had when I joined the World Economic Forum was to take work that I started in New York that was originally called Guidelines for the Internet of Things. And we, we sort of rethought that process where initially we were trying to define what the gold standard is for cities when it comes to good governance of technology. And instead, what we did at the forum is we worked with um, initially the government of Japan when they were uh, president of the G20, and we created the G20 Global Smart City Alliance, which is really a collection of a lot of different entities around the world working on tech governance, representing over 200,000 cities and local governments to advance a set of sort of minimum kind of safeguards and policies and approaches that should exist in every city around the world to ultimately ensure that residents and businesses and government feel comfortable that when technology is deployed, that it's being deployed in a way that is responsible and ethical. And if you have those practices in place, then it gives you that freedom to, to be able to take different elements of those three approaches that you said. And you know that even if you have a city that has a strong kind of government, business, um, partnership, that doesn't mean that that has to compromise civil liberties, that that has to um, be an invasion of privacy if you have policies in place there that limit and uh, regulate what data is captured, what data is shared, right? That, you know, going back to where we started this conversation about censoring, if I've got a camera out on a city street, right? There's nothing bad about that camera. That camera is purely capturing data. The question is, what data is it capturing and who is that data being shared with? And that we have the capacity now that most cameras on city streets probably shouldn't be actually capturing any personally identifiable information. There's very little reason to do that. With edge computing and with the the processing power of our devices i mean these devices alone right which are very affordable have the ability to be you know uh repurposed and used as you know to instrument a city and you can do count real-time data on numbers of people you can do anomaly detection you can do all of this in a way that protects individual privacy um, and that enables sharing with companies in a way that is safe and secure and generates the outcomes you have so that you want. So, uh, you know, to wrap it up, I would say that these different models can all be deployed in a way that is in the public interest. Um, however, we need good policies in place uh, to ultimately shape how the deployments operate, right? And to find that, that good, happy balance where whatever the sort of arrangement is that a government is taking, it's in the public interest and it can make their city smarter, safer, uh, and ultimately more, more future-proof. So I think you're going to see a convergence of these approaches 
Um, and we're not, I'm not going to say that it's all going to work out, but hopefully uh, it, it underscores the, the importance of good technology governance. Uh, going back to this point of technology governance, uh, one, one important point in, thing called, in technology governance is this <coughs> tension between two ends. One end is this market-based approach that you have to collaborate with private companies and create this ecosystem of technology and design the ecosystem and so on. And then the, the, the public sector approach where everything has to be done has to be done by the private sector and the private sector has to guide everything. And this tension happened many times in, in many governments. In Europe, we see that all the time, that some governments, depending on who is the politics, come to the city and go, and then everything has to be public. <laughs> or, and then we have another major and comes to the city and everything has to be private and private. What kind yeah. of guidelines could you provide in order to design and kind of help to solve this tension between these two models in technology governance. Well, look, I I think that going forward, public-private collaboration is essential. It's no longer a good to have, it's a must have. And the reason is that with every passing year, we have more and more demands that are placed upon our cities but the amount of resources that are available, our city budgets are not growing at the same way, at the same rate, right? So each and every year, our city government employees are becoming more resource constrained and can do less proportionate to what they need to accomplish. And so the private sector has to play a role. The question is, you know, what is that collaboration look like? And so we just uh, last month announced a, a new initiative called the Global Partnership for Local Investment together with UN Habitat. And really, this is about advancing new models of public-private collaboration, that too often we think about public-private collaboration in more of a traditional procurement sense, right? That resources are moving from, say, the resources or assets are moving from the public sector to the private sector. And public-private collaboration can oftentimes be much simpler. It can be simple, simply coordination that if you understand what the private sector is able to do and going to do on their own and government acknowledges that and gives them the space, it means that we don't necessarily have to put government resources in that area. So hypothetically, let's say that you've got an area of the city that a you know, tele telecommunications firms or, or various tech companies see a business model for them to bring in increased connectivity. Um, I'll just give you an example. I remember, for example, in back in the day in, in New York, um, in Central Park, a big park, obviously I, people are familiar with, that we had companies that say, we will provide internet access in Central Park because they realized there are a whole lot of tourists there and that they found they saw a number of business models by which they could be financially sustainable. They could basically provide that support and that they knew it was in their business interest. So that sends a signal that government doesn't need to spend its resources on Central Park, right? Obviously, they want to make sure that the offer by the private sector, what the private sector is doing 
it, you know, that they're comfortable with that. There's always going to be a trade-off here in terms of understanding the business model and the implications. And there's going to need to be rules in place, as I said before, to, you know, ensure that we're not ultimately, um, you know, compromising individual privacy, et cetera. But if we know what the private sector um, can do here in cities to improve quality of life, then that can take things off the plate of government, right? And so um, I, you know, I think that we need to be much more creative and we need to think more broadly when it comes to what does public-private collaboration look like and that as we begin to do that, it becomes less of a of a decision between are we going to go with private sector led or are we going to go with public sector led and more it the it becomes a way of okay here's all the stuff we need to achieve and we slice that up and we say okay here's a little area here that that there is a clear business model for and an opportunity for the private sector to leave and so that doesn't even become much of a conversation with the government they sort of take that off their plate um so again, I mean, I, I think the theme of of this conversation, in some ways, is that you know we have seen a a lot of sort of polarized efforts um, when it comes to you know the smart city movement and different ways in which it's rolling out, and that we're going to see more hybrid models, more convergence of these models, and that you know fast forward ten years from now, uh, I think you're going to see there's going to be a lot more gray area, right? That you're not, it's not going to be as sort of black and white on a lot of these issues because they're just going to merge together out of necessity, out of necessity to address problems. That's going to drive this sort of collaboration and this move to connect the best of different models and approaches. Uh, That's wonderful. That's a great insight. The world is going to be hybrid and so is my cities too. I don't know if you want to add anything else to this interview or to this podcast. No, I'd just say that, you know, if you're interested in learning more about the work that we're doing at the World Economic Forum, we are launching a new urban transformation hub to bring together a lot of the work we're doing with cities. The website for that is uthub.org, and you'll find information there on the G20 Global Smart City Alliance, our work on net zero carbon cities, our work on digital twins, and a whole range of other areas. That's wonderful. So thank you very much, Jeff, for being here, and thank you very much Absolutely. for being in the podcast of Esado. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.esade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do better.